0: We invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. We're looking today as we continue in our study of this, this letter uh, at Revelation chapter 4. It's only 11 verses, so we're looking at the whole chapter today. If you'd like to look on the red, in the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage on page 1030. And uh, as you're turning there, just a quick... Uh, note uh, to acknowledge that you know, as we began our study of the book of Revelation, we talked about how for many of us, and myself included, it, it can be a little intimidating to get into the book of Revelation. It can be a little scary uh, with all of the, uh, of the fantastical things that are in the book, and yet it's been pretty tame so far in the first three chapters, but starting today, things get a little bit more wild, and so things it's good for us to remember a couple key principles as we look at this book. One is that this book is organized in, most scholars believe, seven different cycles or seven different uh, sections or visions that are each telling us about the history of the church, kind of in different layers overlapping one another. Uh, Revelation isn't written as just one linear timeline. It's, it's got these multiple levels all talking about church history from different perspectives. And then the second thing which is particularly helpful as we begin in this section today is just to remember that the book of Revelation was written as a letter to God's people to be understood, to be read, to be in a source of encouragement and hope and, and to spur them on in, in their life uh, in this world. It's not written to us to be a secret and to be hidden. And we've talked about how we ought to be reading Revelation more like a children's storybook. Then looking at a 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and trying to figure out how all the pieces put together. So with that in mind, I want to uh, invite you to listen as I read to you from Revelation chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. John says, after this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. our father we are thankful that the same holy spirit that helped john to see this incredible picture the same spirit who gave these words to be written down so that your people in the first century in asia minor could read it and be encouraged is the same spirit who is here in our midst even right at this very moment so we pray father for your spirit to be at work Open our eyes, peel back the curtain, open the door, and we pray that you would give us a glimpse of the throne room of heaven, that you would help us to see things from your perspective, and as a result, you would fill us with hope and encouragement and strength, that we would go out in great joy, loving you and serving you this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies growing up as a little boy was The Wizard of Oz. And my recollection growing up in our household was that every year, it seems like, we would watch The the Wizard of Oz on the television. I did a little checking this week and actually found out that it wasn't just my recollection, that from the late 1950s to the early 1990s, the Wizard of Oz was shown on television, not on the cable stations before the, the cable kind of exploded and all the different channels, but just on the regular TV stations once a year, every year for 33 years or so it was shown. And there was our family gathered watching that movie. We enjoyed it. We had fun with it. It's still a fun movie to watch. Now you can turn it on almost any time of the day given the cable channels and how often it is on. And I enjoy that movie. I I think it's a fun movie to watch. But I hope that we don't get our theology and in particular our doctrine of God from the Wizard of Oz. You remember the story well. Dorothy and her friends are in... Uh, no longer in Kansas. Dorothy's no longer in Kansas, but now in the land of Oz. And she travels with her new friends to the Emerald City to meet the wizard so that the wizard might be able to help them. Dorothy needs help getting back home. And the lion needs help getting courage. And the scarecrow needs help getting a brain. And the tin man needs help getting a heart. And they finally arrive at the Uh, the, the emerald city and they are ushered into their appointment with the wizard and it's almost as if they're ushered into a throne room of sorts and they come face to face with this bodiless head that is floating on this seamless cloud and there's fire and there's smoke there are explosions happening and there's this bellowing voice and Dorothy and her friends are very afraid and he sends them out before he'll help He sends them out to accomplish a task. So the movie tells us about how they go out and they accomplish the task. They bring the the broomstick of the wicked witch back to the Emerald City and back into uh, the company of the wizard. And there they are in front of the great, sovereign, powerful wizard of Oz. Until a little dog named Toto brings the sham To a screeching halt, pulling back the curtain just enough so that Dorothy and her friends are able to pull it back even further and they see that there is no powerful sovereign wizard of Oz. In fact, it's just a very ordinary man pushing buttons, pushing levers back and forth, speaking into a microphone, causing all of the commotion to happen. He's not sovereign. He's not powerful. In fact, he's a fraud. And he's not effectual. He's inept. Incapable of helping Dorothy and her friends, they end up having to find their help and their hope in themselves and what they can do in their own abilities. Now, now what does the Wizard of Oz have to do with Revelation chapter 4? Almost nothing. And that's the point. Can you imagine God's people in the first century who are struggling, who are dealing with all the difficulties that we've been looking at over the recent weeks in chapters two and three. And they are given this letter from God to encourage them. And they open it up. And instead of what they see in Revelation four, they are given the picture of what happened with the Wizard of Oz. The little bit of hope the little bit of strength that they might have had would be dashed on the rocks as they recognized that their God was a fraud. Their God was a sham. Their God was ineffectual. But John gets a very different picture, does he not? God gives him a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And there he sees the throne and he sees someone sitting on the throne. And the one who is seated on this throne in the throne room of heaven is no fraud. He is not ineffective. He is not inept. He is not pushing buttons and levers and speaking into a microphone in order to scare the people that would come into his presence. This is the all-powerful, sovereign, beautiful Lord God Almighty. And he is being worshipped. By his followers and all of the created beings as the one who is worthy above all to receive glory and honor and power. That's what John sees as God peels back the curtain and shows him what's happening in the throne room of heaven. Now, why does, why does Jesus show this to John? Why Why did he give him this picture of what was happening in the throne room of heaven? Uh, Why did he give it to these believers in the first century in Asia Minor? Well, as we've been looking at over recent weeks, uh, and as we saw with the end of this first cycle or this first vision last week, the end of chapter 3, we saw these seven letters to these seven churches. And we've been looking at all of the incredible trials that they've been dealing with. Persecution because of their faith in Jesus. Fear of being found out with the threat of death, and some even being executed because of their faith in Christ. We've read about the intense pressure they were under to worship the Roman emperor, the intense pressure that they were under to participate in the unbiblical practices of the trade guilds of some of their cities, We've read about the incredible suffering and the crushing trials that they were feeling. And we've read about how there were false teachers in their midst seeking to lead them away from faith in Jesus Christ. God knows that His people deal with incredible struggles, incredible difficulties, incredible suffering. And it is so easy for God's people to get discouraged and to lose hope and to be filled with debilitating fear and being tempted to give up. And he knows that the more that we're focused on our Circumstances. the more that we're focused simply on our perspective of what's happening in our lives, the more likely we are to be overly discouraged and driven to despair. And so he says, come up here. I want you to see something. I want you to see reality from my perspective. I want you to see what's happening in this world and in this universe, not simply from your own perspective of your own circumstances in life, but I want to show you my point of view. And he knows that the more we see that big picture, the more we see a sovereign, all powerful one who is in charge at all times, always working to bring all things together for his glory and the good of his people. He knows that we'll begin to have peace and hope and strength in the midst of incredible, difficult things. And so Jesus says, John Come here. Come here. Let me show you. Let me show you my perspective. So let's look and see what God shows John, what he shows his people in the first century, and what he shows us as well, that we might be filled with hope and encouragement today. The first is we get this picture of a sovereign throne of worship. Now, before we jump into that, I want us just to realize here for a second. Uh, John is not just dreaming this. He's not in some kind of a trance. What is happening here is real. This is the spiritual reality that we don't normally get to see. But as we read here in verse 1, God opens the spiritual door to heaven itself and allows John to see what is really happening at that very moment. This is not a facade. It's not something that's fake for his benefit. This is something that's actually taking place. And he gives him the ability to see the spiritual reality that's happening in their midst. And what does he see? He sees a throne. That's a key image in this entire book. Forty-three times in the book of Revelation we read about a throne. Seventeen of those times are in chapters four and five. And thirteen of those times are just in the one chapter we're looking at today, in chapter four. It's important. The idea of a throne, it's a symbol of power, of authority, of sovereignty, of ruling and reigning. And we can see that as we see John give us a description, first of all, of the one who is on the throne. He says in verse 3, He who sat there on that throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I don't know about you, but it's a little frustrating. Here, Jesus is actually, or John is actually getting to see Jesus on the throne. Couldn't he at least given us a better description of what he looked like? No, he can't because he's looking at the Lord God Almighty. That's what we're told in verse 8. That is who is on the throne. In chapter 5, we'll see it's the slain Lamb who is on the throne. He is looking at the risen and resurrected and ruling and reigning Jesus Christ. It's impossible to describe him. It's too much for John. He's too glorious. He's too beautiful. And so how does he describe him? He describes him by thinking of these precious, colorful stones and gems, jasper and carnelian and emerald. These, these colorful gems and stones that reflect light. He's seeing this light, this beautiful light that is coming out from the throne. It, it's meant to be a picture of overwhelming and captivating beauty. It's almost as if we had asked John, John, tell us, what did Jesus look like on the throne? And he would say, He was beautiful. His beauty captivated every aspect of my being. And notice he not only tells us a description of the one who's on the throne, but he also gives us a description of of the placement of that throne. In verse 1 he says, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven this throne is in heaven it's a heavenly throne it is the throne that is above all things and notice in verses 2 and 4 we see that this throne is centrally placed in heaven it is surrounded by these 24 other thrones that are that have elders seated on them and we see also these living creatures that are on all sides of the throne, and in chapter five, we'll read that there are also myriads and myriads of angels surrounding the throne. This is a picture of the throne of Jesus Christ being established in a place in a in, in, in a in a place of power and authority. It is central, with rings of the people of God and the beings of God and the angels of God encircling it. And he does give us a description of those who are around the throne. Look, that's in verses four through eight. He says, Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with gold golden crowns on their heads. Now who are these twenty-four elders? Well, there are lots of differing opinions out there, as you might imagine. Uh, But I think what makes the most sense is that this picture of these 24 elders is a is a picture it's a symbol of the people of God surrounding the throne and we've already talked a little bit and we'll see it more later that numbers in the book of revelation are always important they're often symbolic and the number 24 is an important number in scripture and it's made up of Two twelves. Twelve plus twelve is twenty-four. And the number twelve is incredibly important in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there were twelve tribes of Israel representing the people of God in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, as Jesus came, he gathered twelve apostles around him representing the New Testament people of God. And so this picture that we have here is... Of these 24 elders representing the entirety of the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament from the beginning until the end. And that makes sense when you look and see where they were and what they were wearing. Where were they? They were seated on thrones. We looked at that last week in the last letter, the letter to Laodicea. Jesus said, in the future, those who conquer will sit with me on thrones in heaven. And and what were they wearing? Well, we read that they were wearing crowns. Crowns of life. And earlier in chapter 2, verse 10, as he was writing to the church in Smyrna, he said that God's people in heaven will wear crowns on their head. And he said it as well in chapter 3, verse 11, when he was writing to the church in Philadelphia. And what else were they wearing? Well, they were also wearing white garments. And earlier in chapter 3, Verse 5, we read in the church, when he was writing to the church in Sardis, that he says that God's people will be clothed in white garments. And he says it again as he comes to the letter to the church in Laodicea. The picture here we have is of God's people encircling the throne, worshiping the Lamb, praising and honoring and glorifying the Lord God Almighty. But they're not the only ones that are there. We see at the end of verse six that there are these four living creatures. The end of verse six, he says, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. Full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to talk about the holiness of God. Again, there are lots of differing opinions about these four living creatures. They show up in a couple of different places in the scriptures. But I think what makes the most sense is that these four living creatures represent all of the animals of God's creation. The greatest animal of God's creation, man, is represented. At that time, the greatest of the wild animals, the lion, is represented. The greatest of the domesticated animals, the ox, is represented. And the greatest of the birds, the eagle, is represented. This is a picture of not only the people of God around the throne worshiping God, but all of God's created beings worshiping surrounding the throne. And notice he does tell us in verses 8 through 11, he gives us a description of what they are doing. They are worshiping. and honor, and power. What are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord God Almighty. They're crying out about the holiness of God, the glory, the honor, the power of the Lord God Almighty. And notice they are doing it with humility. These living creatures were told in other places in the Scriptures with these six wings cover their faces and cover their feet a sign of humility and these elders as the living beings begin to join in this chorus about the holiness of God they fall on their faces before the throne and they take their crowns and they cast them before the throne we see this incredible picture of the worship of Jesus that's taking place in the throne room of heaven before we move on to see the second image of a sovereign throne here in this passage just one quick takeaway. As we think about this sovereign throne of worship here in this picture from Revelation 4, it's a reminder of what we and all creation are designed and created to do. To worship the Lord. To declare His glory and His honor and His power. We have been wired. We have been put together. All of us with the image of God, we have been put together to worship. That's how we are created. We are created beings to worship That's why there's so much discussion in the Bible about false idols. Everyone is going to worship something. We have to. We've been created with that need. And if we're not worshiping the Lord God Almighty, we will worship other things. That's actually a fairly good definition of what sin is. Worshiping the wrong thing. Jesus not being the most beautiful thing to us. And instead, things like money or sexual pleasure or control or even just our good name become the things that we begin to worship. And God is clear from this passage and other places in Scripture that He will not tolerate us worshiping false things. We don't have time to read it this morning, but perhaps this afternoon you can open your Bibles and read Psalm 2. It's a wonderful depiction of God being jealous for the worship that he is worthy to receive. The second image that we have here is a, an image of a sovereign throne of judgment. A picture of a sovereign judge that is on the throne. And we can see that a couple of different places. The first is the beginning of verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pe- excuse me, peals of thunder. We have this thunder, we have this lightning, flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. And as John experienced this, and as he wrote it down and the people of God heard it, one of the very first things that would have come to their minds was a scene from the Old Testament where there was thunder and lightning coming from the heavens down to the earth. It was when Moses was called up to Mount Sinai in the giving of the law of God. They saw thunder. They heard thunder and saw lightning coming out of the mountain. That place where God gave his written standard of righteousness to his people. Uh, The standard of the law that was meant to show them their need for a savior. And how they are to live holy lives honoring the Lord. And John is being brought into the throne room of heaven. And he is seeing the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Who is reigning as judge from his throne. With all righteousness. We see this scene of a sovereign judge as well. The beginning of verse six. Before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. The sea will come up later in the book of Revelation. But we can just note here it's very interesting that in this vision that John has of the reality of what's happening in the throne room of heaven, he sees the sea that is still, that is like glass, that is like crystal. In the Bible and in most ancient literature, the sea often represents chaos and uncertainty. We think about that even. In in the beginning chapters of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, where we read the earth was without form and it was void and darkness was over the deep, the face of the deep. And we read that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, over the sea. And then God spoke and began to organize and structure creation. We see the idea of a sea being... Chaotic in bringing uncertainty with the Red Sea story in the Old Testament as well. There where God's people were able to safely cross the Red Sea. But as Pharaoh and his army began to pursue God's people, the sea became angry and came down in judgment over Pharaoh and his armies. Later in chapter 13 of Revelation, we'll see a beast that comes out of the sea. Or maybe we can just remind ourselves of what happened a few weeks ago in the Bahamas as the sea, given a name, Dorian, ripped its way through, causing incredible destruction. But notice here, what's happening with this sea? This sea is still. This sea is is like glass. It's like a crystal in front of the throne. Here we have a picture of the sovereign judge of the universe that stills chaos in the turmoil of the sea. This is the Lord God Almighty. That word Almighty is the same Greek word that many Roman emperors would use to describe themselves. It was a very important word that meant almighty, powerful, sovereign, and they would try to use it for themselves, but they are not like this one. This one is the true Almighty. He is the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Regardless of how much the culture in our world emphasizes that everything is relative, what we have here is a picture of true reality. There is a sovereign Lord judge on the throne, and He is the standard of truth and righteousness and holiness. We're going to see that even more clearly later in Revelation as we see this judge judging the beast and evil. But he's giving us just a glimpse of it here. And we see the proper response. Bowing before the throne in humility and worshiping the lamb on the throne. There's a third Sense There's a third picture here of what we get uh, with this this vision of the throne room of heaven. It's not only a sovereign throne of worship and judgment, but it's a sovereign throne of grace. Now, where do we see grace here in Revelation 4? I actually see it several different places. The best one, I think, is at the end of verse 3. As John looks at this... Brilliant, beautiful, captivating light coming out of the throne. Notice what he also sees. A rainbow. It's a rainbow. It's that picture that God gave to his people in Genesis chapter 9 in the story of Noah. As a sign and seal of God's promise of his faithfulness to never destroy the world again. And notice here, as it encircles the throne and the one who is seated on the throne, it's a full rainbow signifying the complete, perfect, loving grace and goodness and patience and long suffering of the one on the throne. This rainbow is a reminder of the promise that God would not let his judgment fall on his people because The rainbow ultimately pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now on that throne that the rainbow is encircling, reminding us that God's judgment falls on Christ instead of us. We can see God's grace in other places in chapter 4 as well. We can see it at the end of verse 4. Notice what these elders, these representatives of, of the people of God, notice what they're wearing. We're told that they're wearing white garments and crowns. It's just, just like what Jesus said they would be wearing. And what does it signify? It signifies God's people who are cleansed and pure, undefiled and fully accepted and rejoiced over, who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Which, by the way, is the image that we'll see next week in chapter 5, the slain Lamb on the throne. It's his blood that we've been washed in. It's by his work, it's his life, at his death and resurrection, that we get our white garments and crowns of life. It's by his grace. We can also see his grace in chapter one or chapter four, verses one and two. Notice that it's Jesus Himself who calls John into the throne room of heaven. We could never enter into the throne room of heaven itself on our own accord, based on our own record. We, like Isaiah, would recognize, woe is me. If we were to get a sense, a glimpse, even an invitation to come into the throne room, we would say, we are not worthy. We are not worthy to be in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. But Jesus says, come with me. I want to show you something. You're going to enter into the throne room of heaven, not on your record, not on your name, but on my record and on my name. We see his grace, we see his mercy. One other way we see his grace here is at the end of chapter 5, we see another person that's here at the throne. We read that there are seven torches of fire burning, which are the seven spirits of God. And we saw earlier in chapter 1 that this number 7 is the number of perfection. And so what John is seeing is a perfect spirit He's seeing the Holy Spirit. And so God is reminding John that the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, the encourager is there in the presence of God with God's people, God's grace and mercy to us. So we see these images of a sovereign throne of worship and judgment and grace. But what what does all this mean for us? What do we do with all of this? How is it meant to help us? So three quick things here that I think are good takeaways for us today. The first is this. This passage is meant to fill us with a bold hope and comfort in the midst of the suffering and trials that we deal with in this life. Jesus says to us, as we're in the midst of incredible difficulties and pressures and temptations and, and, and temptations to despair and to and to give up and to walk away from the Lord, he says, if all you're doing is focusing on your perspective of life, if all you're doing is looking at your circumstances of life, you are prone, you will be prone to fall away. But I want you to come here. I want to pull back the spiritual door, as it were, spiritual curtain, as it were. And I want you to be able to peek into and get a glimpse of what's happening in the throne room of heaven itself. Look and see the Lord God Almighty is on the throne. He is in control. He is sovereign. He has all authority. He determines what we read in verse one must take place. And as we see things, not from our perspective, but we see things from God's perspective, it doesn't make us a fatalist and it doesn't make us treat God as some cosmic sadist. We acknowledge that there is mystery as we try to plumb the depths of the sovereignty of God. But at the same time, it fills us with hope. Imagine if God wasn't in control. Imagine if. You had to walk the road that you're walking with the trials and the suffering and the persecutions and the difficulties that you're facing. And yet the God that you believed in was the God of the Wizard of Oz. There would be no hope in that. But God peels back the curtain to show us the true Lord God Almighty that is in control. We see the Sovereign One who is holy and worthy to receive all glory and honor and power and is in control. And it fills us with hope in the midst of incredible health challenges. When we're facing devastating diagnoses. When we have family members who are ruining their lives and walking away from the Lord. When we're experiencing crushing loneliness. When we are experiencing overwhelming Temptation and pressures to sin, Jesus pulls back the curtain and he says, look and see who's on the throne. And it may not help us to understand everything that we're experiencing, but this is what we know. That he is in control. That he is the sovereign Lord God Almighty. Listen, I know that Romans 8 is often used in a cliche way. But it is God's word and it is true. And what Paul says at the end of chapter 8 ought to fill us with incredible hope as we get this picture of God's perspective of what is happening in the throne room of heaven. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine? This is the one who's on the throne and he is always at work bringing about his glory and the good of his people. So it helps us to rest and trust in him. Secondly, this passage is meant to fill us with a hope and a peace in the midst of doubts that God could actually love somebody like me, could actually save somebody like me. What John sees here is not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something that's made up. What he is seeing here is the spiritual reality, what is true, what is true even at this very moment. The people of God around the throne, worshiping, secure and certain, spiritually dressed in white garments of righteousness, not of their own making, but of the Lamb of God, wearing crowns of life that have been achieved by his work. We lose sight of that reality when we get overwhelmed with our sin and we feel the power and the pressure of temptations and we give in once again to those besetting sins that seem to captivate us so much. How could the Lord love me? How could the Lord save me? But God gave us this picture of the reality of what is happening in the throne room of heaven at this very moment. Our salvation, our acceptance with the Lord is sure and secure because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It was secured by his death. It was sealed by his resurrection. And at this very moment, right now, we are represented in the throne room of heaven itself. And one day we'll actually be there. Thirdly, lastly. This passage is meant to remind us that our worship here on earth must be God-centered rather than man-centered. If there's anything that comes clearly from this passage in Revelation 4, it is that the worship that is happening in the throne room of heaven is focused and dedicated and centered on Jesus. The emphasis here is not what the worshipers of Jesus are getting. The focus is on the one that they're worshiping. It helps us to remember who our audience is. When we gather together as God's people, we gather to worship the Lord alone. That's our starting place. It impacts everything that we do. It's the reason for what we do in our service, and it's the how of how we do things in our service. We focus on who the Lord is, what He has done, and our response primary the primary focus shouldn't be what we get out of it and how we feel and whether we're filled up and affirmed that's not the primary reason now by god's grace hopefully we live we leave filled and affirmed and strengthened in our faith but the first and the most important thing is that we are gathering to worship the lord god almighty he is our audience There's another aspect here of realizing that our worship must be God-centered, not just man-centered. Not only need to remember who our audience is, but we need to think about our mindset when we gather together weekly for corporate worship. If I'm right about how we began our service, that as we gather together... Together in this room and with God's people around the world, by faith, our voices, our hearts are being joined with the chorus in heaven right now around the throne, that we are we are by faith actually there worshiping together with all of God's people, then that ought to impact how we gather together in this room. Revelation 4 is not make-believe. This is the real picture of what is spiritually taking place even right now. And if we realize that, how will it change our mindset when we gather? Can I go to meddling just a little bit? How would it change how we walk into this room to worship? I recognize there are all kinds of things that cause us to be distracted as we, even on our way to church, Sometimes those things are wonderful blessings. And sometimes they're things that we allow our minds to get distracted with that we shouldn't. But if what we're doing here is, is, is really gathering together with the angelic choir and the people of God and the creatures of God to worship the Lord God Almighty, how would it impact the, the, the work that we try to do to become undistracted as we come to worship? How would it change how we arrive As we walk in, would we come in late? Come in half-hearted? Or would we come in with expectation? Coming in with an expectation that we are gathering with God's people here and around the world and even in the heaven itself to worship the Lord God Almighty. How would it impact The things that we allow ourselves to be distracted with. The things that are coming tomorrow at work. Comparing ourselves with others that we're sitting around. Falling asleep. Every week, God gives us this incredible blessing to gather and to worship. Let's make the most of it. Several different acquaintances acquaintances of mine have told the story about a documentary that was produced years ago about World War II, the D-Day invasion. On the beaches of Normandy. I've looked for that documentary. I haven't been able to find it yet. But the description of this documentary is that uh, these, these soldiers that survived D-Day were interviewed. Lots of different kinds of soldiers from different perspectives. Uh, all storming the beaches of Normandy. All a part of, of that invasion force. But they all were looking at it from different points of view. And at one point in the documentary, two different men were interviewed back to back that had different perspectives of what they saw. The first man was a foot soldier who arrived on a boat and onto the beach and they began to push back the German army. But then they, as they came on the beach and as he was starting to look around, he saw hundreds and thousands of American soldiers mowed down by the German machine guns. And he said that as he looked around and he saw the carnage, as he, as he saw this horrific scene, he realized there's no way that we're going to win this battle. And then right after that, there was another soldier, this soldier, an American pilot who was flying a bomber over the same beach at almost the exact same time as the soldier before that was coming off of the boat, watching the, the events that were taking place from a vantage point of the sky. And he said that as he watched the, the unfolding that was happening on the beach and the line after line after line of American troops that were coming, he realized there's no way we're going to lose this battle. These two soldiers experiencing the same thing having very different senses of hope. Why? Because they had different perspectives. One on the ground focused only on what he could see in his own circumstances and he looked around and he despaired. The other who saw the big picture, who could see the big battle that was taking place and he could see there's no way we're going to lose. That's what's happening in Revelation 4. God's peeling the curtain back and he's saying, I want you to see things from my perspective. I I I want you to see things from my point of view so you can know the sovereign, almighty Lord God is on the throne. So have hope. Have strength. Go out and love and live for me this week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for the truth of it. I thank you so much for giving us just this glimpse into the throne room of heaven. Thank you for what you enabled John to see and enabling him to write it down. And we thank you that we have it before us. And I pray that it would be burned deeply into our hearts and our minds. Help us to go out this week. Father. And to believe this truth, these truths that you give us, this picture of what is actually taking place in heaven. And may it encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.